like to invite you to a soul-level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guests' spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. Today for Song of the Soul, we're headed to southeast Indiana, the city of Richmond, for a visit with Joshua Brown, pastor of West Richmond Friends Meeting. I ran into him at a weekly coffee house event hosted by West Richmond Friends. Turns out that while he's a full-time pastor, his heart seems to be a full-time lover of traditional folk music, sharing it widely in all sorts of venues. With his dulcimers and banjo and an encyclopedic knowledge of folk music, Joshua Brown brings great riches to today's Song of the Soul. He joins us from Richmond, Indiana. Josh, it's great to have you here today for Song of the Soul. Hi, Mark. Thanks for asking me. Glad to be on the show. Are you Indiana born and raised? How long have you been around Richmond? No, I've been in Richmond for quite a long time, about 20 years now. But I was born out east in Buffalo, New York, and raised there in upstate Vermont. Have you been able to take on the Southern Indiana accent yet? No, I haven't. And I'll tell you, once in a while when I'm out at the grocery store, Kroger's or someplace like that, I'll get a funny look from one of the cashiers. They'll say, you're not from around here, are you? So I, I guess I still have a little of my accent from home. It is funny how persistent that is. And I think most of us don't think of Indiana as the South. But when you go south in Indiana, the accent definitely appears pretty strongly. Yeah, and in Richmond, there was a big influx of people who came here from Tennessee and Kentucky, especially during the war years. They came up to work in the plants here. So Richmond actually has quite a strong southern influence. Was there also immigration to that area from, say, North Carolina and such back during the Civil War? I... Actually, before the Civil War, the Quakers founded Richmond, Indiana, and they started streaming out here in the very early 1800s. They were leaving North and South Carolina to move to one of the new free states, so they, they came here in great numbers, starting around 1805 or so. Have you ever run into anyone there named Judkins? No, I can't say as I have. Actually, looking through some old Quaker records, I saw a list of a number of Judkins, which is the name I grew up with, who had migrated from North Carolina over to Indiana and to Ohio because they're Quakers and, I assumed, for avoidance of slavery. So I actually thought that maybe you'd even know some of my relatives. No, but there were lots and lots of people in this area who worked on the Underground Railroad up in Fountain City, just north of here. Levi Coffin was the station master of the Underground Railroad. And the chain ran from Cincinnati up through Richmond and from there on up into Canada. Do you happen to know, did Levi Coffin get kicked out of his meeting or not? I mean, he was walking the edge. He was pushing the activist edge there amongst Quakers, even though they were very opposed to slavery. As an institution, sanctioning breaking of the law was a bit of an issue. 
I don't think he was ever kicked out, but it was a real hot issue around here. In the last couple of years, I did some research for the autobiography of a Quaker named Alan Jay, who also worked on the Underground Railroad when he was a boy. I came across some first-hand accounts, both of conducting slaves on the Underground Railroad, but also the conflict. There were a lot of Quakers who, well, let's, let's say all the Quakers believed that slavery was wrong, but some believed that you had to obey the law, and others felt kind of a call to obey God's higher law, and they were the ones who ran the Underground Railroad. And do those kind of issues play out for you these days in Quaker circles there in Indiana? Oh, sure. It's interesting right now the kind of pushback I'm hearing from different people about the occupying movement. There are people who say, gee, this is great, and they think it's wonderful, and there are others who say, uh, I don't really like the way this is going against the law, and they feel kind of uncomfortable about it. So that kind of business of civil disobedience is still a pretty strong issue. Of course, I'm asking you some of these things because you are a Quaker pastor there in Richmond, Indiana. War tax resistance, is that one of the issues that anybody deals with there? I personally have dealt with that because I've been concerned about providing for war, even if my body isn't going, if I give them the bullets or the bombs that they need. So the question comes up, do I violate the law or do I respect the higher law that I think I'm called to obey? Well, the whole issue of war tax resistance goes back to the late 1700s when Quakers, both in America and in Great Britain, were very strongly against paying for either current or future or past wars. The way that plays out today, there's a small group of Quakers who are war tax resistors. We have one couple here in our congregation. And every year, they estimate how much of their taxes is going to pay for war. And they set that money aside in escrow. They'll pay the rest of their tax voluntarily, but they'll hold out the tax that they think would go to pay for war. Well, I have you here today, Josh, because you are a musician, as well as a pastor, a leader of a Quaker congregation. Give me an idea of your history with music. How far does that go back? What instruments you play? That kind of thing. I come from a musical family. I don't want to say professional musicians, but in my family, everybody sang. My grandfather, who grew up down in New Orleans, had to drop out of school when he was probably in around eighth grade because his father died. As soon as he got just a little money together, he bought his family a piano, and they lived in a tiny little shack in New Orleans in what was called the Irish Channel neighborhood. Almost every evening, they would have sing-alongs and soirees for the whole neighborhood. So I grew up with my grandfather singing and my two Irish uncles and my mother. Everybody sang. Yeah, my, my uncles used to come and sing the kids to sleep when I was a boy. So I, there were all these wonderful old Irish songs that I grew up with. And back in the days before the interstate went through, car trips were very, very long and arduous. And when we would be driving the 13 or 14 hours from Buffalo to northern Vermont to go up and see my grandparents, my folks would sing every song they ever knew. It was all trying to hold back the kids from asking, are we there yet? And they would sing and re-sing every college song, every drinking song, every old turn-of-the-century romantic song that they could remember. I think that what that did was to make me grow up thinking everyone can sing rather than thinking that singing was a specialty thing that only professionals could sing. 
So when did your history singing or performing music begin? I got started when I was in high school. I was very disruptive in my high school English class, and the teacher told me to go find something else. So I went over to our local college and looked around in the English department, and the only thing that would fit my schedule was a class in folklore. And I was very, very lucky to have a folklore professor who had studied with Gene Ritchie and who introduced me to playing the dulcimer. So that year I built my very first dulcimer. I've built half a dozen of them by now. And she got me very interested not only in the songs, but in the whole folklore process of how songs change over time and collect different variants and different verses. So I'm almost as interested in the folklore process as I am in the actual singing of the songs. So did you actually get involved in performing there, or do you actually perform with respect to West Richmond or other places? Could we go out to a venue and actually see Joshua Brown headlining? <laughs> yes, I play at our coffee house pretty regularly, Common Grounds Coffee House. And I occasionally play for a church service, although most of the time I'll just sing in our choir. But I play in all kinds of venues. I've played for almost 40 years now in nursing homes and schools and civic groups and public libraries, anywhere where I can get a hearing. My feeling is that singing is a gift and that all of us share it. And so I'm always on the lookout for places where I can not only sing myself, but get other people to sing with me. Well, then let's do some of that sharing You've got some music picked out for Song of the Soul. How shall we start? Well, I thought maybe we could start with a fun one. This is one of the earliest songs that I learned from my father, who was a great singer. Uh, he didn't come from the Irish tradition. He collected wonderful old songs from the early 20th century. And this is a wonderful parody song called I Was Born About 10,000 Years Ago. If you ever went to Sunday school, you'll recognize who the characters are. And maybe you'll recognize yourself in making some of the mistakes that the singer made. I was born about 10,000 years ago. There ain't nothing on this earth that I don't know. I saw Peter, Paul, and Moses playing Ring Around the Roses. And I'll lick the man that says it isn't so. I saw Satan when he looked the garden o'er I saw Adam and Eve driven from the door And behind the bushes peepin' saw the apple they was eaten And I'll swear that I'm the man that ate the core I saw Cain nail little Abel in the glade And I know that it was poker that they played Cause I was right there in the scrub when he hit him with a club Although it may have been a diamond or a spade I taught Solomon his little ABCs I helped Brigham Young invent Limburger cheese And I went to sea one day with Methuselah, they say And I held his flowing whiskers in the breeze I saw Samson when he laid the village cold I helped Daniel tame the lions in their hold And I helped build the Tower of Babel up as high as they were able And there's lots of other things I haven't told 
I saw Noah when he built his famous ark. Slipped inside it late one night when it was dark. Saw Jonah swallowed by the whale, and I pulled the lion's tail, and I swam the river Jordan for a lark. Queen Elizabeth fell mad in love with me. We were married in New Jersey secretly. Till I snuck around and shook her and went down with General Hooker to shoot mosquitoes down in Tennessee. I remember when this country had a king. I helped Cleopatra pawn her wedding ring. And I saw the flags flying when George Washington stopped lying on the night the angels first began to sing. For I am a very educated man To keep my brains within my head I plan I've been on this earth so long That I used to sing this song When Abraham and Isaac kicked the can Some of the best Bible study I've ever heard I was born about 10,000 years ago Performed by Josh Brown He's with us here today for Song of the Soul Josh, you said you learned that from your father That he, he was not of the Irish tradition, but on your mother's side, I understand it was Irish. Your father's side, he not Irish, or did he just not have the songs? He didn't have so many of the songs. My father had strange old college songs. When I was a little boy, he would sing a, a lullaby to us called, We Feed the Baby Garlic to Find Him in the Dark. And just that opening line gives you some idea of how strange that song was. I had the best possible upbringing for a musician. I had a family who sang. That's good stuff. You said as you were driving across the country that they would share with you also drinking songs or that kind of thing. I mean, uh, some of them can be kind of bawdy, uh, and your parents didn't hold back? No, they didn't really. Back during the nineteen early 1900s, before the days of boomboxes and CDs and MP3 players, most colleges had a much more limited range of social life. You couldn't go online and do role-playing games with your friends. Both my parents went to fairly small colleges where a lot of the entertainment was self-made. In the evenings, if you weren't doing your homework, well, you visited with your friends while you played bridge. They did an awful lot of singing, especially during the war years when transportation was limited. So I grew up learning all kinds of college drinking songs, fraternity songs, parodies of all kinds. I have a, a pretty well-developed sense of nonsense in singing. And does that come in very usefully as you preach as a, a pastor there at the Friends Church? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't suppose you've ever included a drinking song as part of the service. Actually, I've, I've only done it by mistake. I remember once I was doing some music at a Baptist retreat in Hingham, Massachusetts, and it was one of those long, almost endurance contest sort of events where you just got very, very tired after being up for 36 hours. And at the end of the retreat, the leader looked at me and asked if I would lead them in singing, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And without really thinking about it, I sang the parody, which is what I had learned long before I learned the hymn. In a clear voice that you could hear 20 pews away, I sang, Blessed be the tie that binds my collar to my shirt. 
I'm wasting no dollars in buying new collars to hide that old ring of dirt. <laughs> and I wasn't sure if the Baptists all thought it was funny. There was an awful lot of people kind of choking and smurfing, trying not to laugh. And finally, they couldn't take it and broke down laughing. But that's the kind of thing I've, I've done by accident from time to time. That sounds like a church service or a worship session that I'd like to be part of. <laughs> it was one to remember. Well, give us some more music. You've got quite a bit of it lined up here, and I think you're probably, your cup is flowing over with all this music, so we better get right to some more. Well, I thought maybe for our next one, we could use a song that I learned from my Uncle Jerry, who was a very fine Irish tenor. It's a humorous song, probably from the late 1800s. It's called, Who Put the Overalls in Mrs. Murphy's Chowder? Mistress Murphy gave a party just about a week ago. Everything was plentiful, for the Murphys are not slow. They treated us like gentlemen, we tried to act the same. Ah, oh, but for what happened, oh, it was an awful shame. When Mrs. Murphy dished the chowder out, she fainted on the spot. Cause she'd found a pair of overalls at the bottom of the pot. Tim Nolan, he got ripping mad, his eyes were bulging out. He jumped upon the table and so loudly he did shout. Who put the overalls in Mistress Murphy's chowder? Nobody answered, so he showed it all the louder. It's an Irish trick, it's true, I can lick the mick that threw. The overalls in Mistress Murphy's chowder. They dragged the pants from out the pot and laid them on the floor. Each man swore upon his life he'd ne'er seen them before. They were plastered up with mortar, they were worn out at the knee. They'd had their many ups and downs as we could plainly see. When Mrs. Murphy she came to, she had to cry and pout. Cause she'd had him in her wash that day and forgot to take them out. Tim Nolan, he excused himself for what he'd said that night. So we put music to the words and sang with all our might. Who put the overalls in Mistress Murphy's chowder? Nobody answered, so he shouted all the louder. It's an Irish trick, it's true. I can lick the mick that threw. The overalls in Mistress Murphy's chowder. Just who put the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder, performed here by Josh Brown. Again, you got this because you grew up in an Irish family. Is this the kind of song that your mother would have passed on to you? Yeah, you said your uncle passed it on, but did your mother hold back on that? I mean, when she was tucking you in at night, what did she sing to you? My mom didn't sing so much, but she read to us all the time. I think there's no better way to help a child become a good reader than by reading to them often and by asking them to read aloud. So we had all kinds of wonderful poetry when I was a child, uh, everything from A.A. A. Milne to Edward Lear. So when we weren't singing, we, we were hearing poetry when I was a kid. How many siblings did you grow up with? Was this a question of everybody singing parts uh, along the scale, your baritones and your sopranos and everybody in the house? No, we didn't really have the tradition of part singing. I picked that up more when I was older. I've got an older brother and a younger brother, both of whom are excellent singers. My younger brother, Charlie, sings bass and is quite a good composer. Uh, my older brother, Bob, plays on quite a number of instruments, but we all sang. 
Are there any songs that you sang growing up that you would be abashed to sing now as a Quaker minister? I don't think so. I think the main thing is that the songs that I grew up singing, we poked fun at ourselves, and we poked a great deal of fun at people who were pompous or stuck up. But I can't recall any songs, for example, that were racist or that had any kind of attack on any particular group. So I'm singing the same songs that I sung for almost 50 years. You said your mother was Irish. Your father, what was his musical repertoire? He sang a bunch of ghastly old cowboy songs that he picked up when he was probably in his teens and worked on a dude ranch out west. He had this awful old Buck Owens-style guitar with steel strings that cut your fingers to shreds. And my dad groaned more than sang. He did it very enthusiastically. But he, he had some wonderful, terrible old cowboy songs that he would inflict on us when he ran out of anything else to sing. I don't suppose that Blood on the Saddle is one of them. I have a friend who's... Blood on the Saddle, Blood on the Ground, great red gallons of blood all around. You bet. I doubt that there's uh, one in 20 people today who know that song, but I have a friend from Peace Corps days who grew up with her father singing her to bed with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there, there are songs that you have to kind of choose your audience for. In church, I wouldn't probably sing one of my mother's favorites, the National Embalming School song, for example. <laughs> it sounds like a family with a good sense of humor. Absolutely. There's one song that I think might be kind of fun to share from my Irish background. As you may know, the Irish, many of them, came over to the United States around 1845 when there was a terrible famine. The Irish staple crop was always the potato, and in 1845, a virus attacked all the potatoes in Ireland. And one morning, people woke up and their crops had all died. They literally had almost nothing else, and they starved to death by the thousands. Before the famine, Ireland had about 8 million people. After the famine, they were down to about 2 million. 3 or 4 million had emigrated, and the rest had died. My mother's family came over to New Orleans. They were among the poorest of the poor. The British textile mills were hungry for cotton, so cotton would be sent over to Liverpool, and on the way back from Britain, they would bring another batch of Irish immigrants. And so many of them died on the way that they were called the coffin ships. My great-grandfather was a baby when he came over from Ireland. His mother died on the way over. His father probably died five or six years afterwards. And he grew up as an orphan on the streets of New Orleans. So when I started finding out some more about my family, I had just been watching the PBS series The Irish in America. It inspired me to write this next song, which is very, very personal, very much a part of my own family. It's simply called 1845. My people left their country in 1845, arriving in New Orleans, more dead than they were alive. For Ireland could not feed them, the potato crop had failed. So across the western ocean, in the coffin ships they sailed. 
My great-granddad was a baby when to America they came. His mother, she died on the way. I never learned her name. The clothes that they wore on their backs were all that they possessed. When they landed in New Orleans, they were hungry and distressed. Well, the jobs that were available were the ones not fit for slaves. But it was work or starve again they saw, and bread they had to have. They were set to digging ditches and clearing swamps by hand. Yellow fever and malaria were their welcome to this land. Granddad was a fine, strong man. O'Brien was his name. He became the foreman stevedore on the docks of New Orleans. His wife took service in the homes of the rich folk on St. Charles. And they raised a goodly family of seven boys and girls. They drank their pay on Saturday, I'm sorry now to tell. And they went to the Mass on Sunday, to save their souls from hell. Great Grandad hated the color blue, and he hated uniforms. They reminded him of the police that drove them from their homes. Their story is not over, though many years have gone. By work and education, their children built good homes. Two hundred people of their line are very much alive. From the hungry ones who landed here in 1845. A sad, real song, 1845. It's by Josh Brown. He's here with us here today. Josh, I don't think you usually are much of a songwriter. I mean, you don't do that very often. You generally perform other people's songs. I guess there's an awfully good supply out there that you can choose from. There is. I have probably a little bit north of a thousand songs in my repertoire, ones that I know by heart. There are so many of them and so many different versions, either a different tune or different words. 
verses that have been added and woven in over the years. I write very few songs, but I adapt quite a few of them. And what do you mean by adapting? Very often there will be a song which has a nice feeling, a nice tune, but not quite enough words to go with it. The classic example for me is a Shaker song called Simple Gifts, which is beautiful and many, many people know it, but you often feel, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have more verses for it? I've come across a couple of other writers who have created verses, but none really seems to me to capture the, the Shaker feeling, the Shaker spirituality. I don't have that one to play for you here today, but that's an example of a song that just needed a little bit more. It was crying out for more verses. One of the things I don't think I mentioned to you, Josh, is that I was over with Quakers in Paris, France, and they had no idea of this song, so we created, or mainly I created, a translation of the song into French. So I didn't create new verses, but I did translate it into French. It's my own little bit of passing on the culture. One of the things that I really enjoy doing is helping people to understand the context of a song or the place that a song came from or grew out of. I think that so many people today, especially children who I meet, have very little sense of history other than kind of the little compressed, tidied-up versions that they've been force-fed in school and try to forget as soon as possible. So when I sing, I usually give some introduction to a song and try and help my audience understand where did this come from? How did it grow? Uh, what was the passion that was driving a song like that? I've got one for you that the tune is familiar. As soon as you'll hear it, you'll recognize the tune, which is the same as Joshua Foot, the Battle of Jericho. But the original tune was a song from back during the days of slavery. It's called Slavery Chain Done Broke at Last. It was a song sung by black preachers, African-American preachers, and sung to congregations who could hear it and respond. You see, the thing was that during slavery days, African-American slaves were forbidden to read and forbidden for anyone to teach them how to read. But they could quote from the Bible, and many of them developed almost an encyclopedic memory of Bible stories. Of course, the Bible is a very radical document in many places. They heard the stories of the people of Israel being freed from slavery, and they thought, well, what about us? Could we be freed as well? And could the God who rescued the people of Israel rescue us? So that's what this song is about. Slavery Chain, formed here by Josh Brown. Slavery chain done, broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chain done, broke at last, I'm gonna praise God till I die. We're gathered here, my brothers, in this here wilderness. For to speak some words of comfort to each other in distress. Slavery chain done, broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chain done, broke at last, I'm gonna praise God till I die. Now Pharaoh down in Egypt's land was the worst man ever born. He had those Hebrew children down working in the corn. Slavery chain done, broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chain done, broke at last, I'm gonna praise God till I die. Well, the Lord got tired of their toiling, and he says, I'll let him know. So Moses, go tell Pharaoh for to let my children go. Slavery chain done, broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chain done, broke at last, I'm gonna praise God till I die. 
And if he refused to do it, I'll make him rue the hour. Cause I'll empty down on Egypt's land all the workings of my power. Slavery chained down, broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chained down, broke at last, I'm gonna praise God till I die. Now I'll tell you fellow Christians, things'll happen mighty strange. Cause the Lord done this for Israel and his ways don't never change. Slavery chained done, broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chained done, broke at last, I'm gonna praise God till I die. And the love God showed for Israel wasn't all on Israel spent. So don't go tell your master that I'm a preaching discontent. Cause I'm not, no, I'm a judging Bible people by their acts. I'm a giving you the scriptures and I'm a handing you the facts. Slavery chained done, broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chained done, broke at last, I'm gonna praise God till I die. Now Pharaoh believed in slavery, but the Lord, he made him see that the people he put breath into every mother's child was free. Slavery chained done, broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chained done, broke at last, I'm gonna praise God till I die. There's no more weary traveling, cause my Jesus set me free. And there's no more auction block for me, cause he gave me liberty. Slavery chained done, broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chained done, broke at last, I'm gonna praise God till I die. Joshua Brown performing Slavery Chain for today's Song of the Soul. This is Song of the Soul, a Northern Spirit Radio production, and I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. Come to the site, find links to my guests, like Josh Brown, who's with us here today, all of the other guests of my past six and a half years, and all of our programs. You can listen to them, download them, you can connect up via iTunes. It's all there and it's all free. Again, come to nordenspiritradio.org and please leave us comments. We'd like to hear from you so that the communication is two-way when you visit. Joshua Brown is pastor at a Quaker church, West Richmond's Friends Meeting in Richmond, Indiana. You said that you often sing as part of the choir there. Mm-hmm. Is that a a comfortable role for the pastor to step down. What role do you play as pastor in the meeting? In the choir, right, the role that I play is that I sing tenor. Or if it's three-part, well, I'll, I'll sing baritone and don't take any other kind of position than that. I often help pick out some of the hymns, but if I'm not preaching that particular Sunday, I'll ask the speaker what hymns they would like. Our church is a little bit unusual. When I first came there, they said, we hope you don't mind, but is it okay if you only preach every other week? because we have a lot of other ministers in the congregation, and they take this ministry of all believers very seriously. So I usually only preach about twice a month. That gives me more time to work on developing leadership of other people, visitation, and all those other kind of pastoral tasks. Is it really clear that you are not the leader of the congregation, but rather you're a servant of the congregation? The Catholic tradition I grew up in, it was very clear that the priests, and above him bishops and archbishops and so on, that power flowed in that direction, or control flowed in that direction? I'm a leader, but I'm not the only leader. And depending on what the issue is, I might not even be the best leader. 
So there are people who are better song leaders than I am for choral singing. There are certainly people who know more about running the numbers and spreadsheets than I do. But I try to make room for other people's leadership. And one of the best descriptions of a good pastor, in my view, is that it's someone who encourages and releases other people for ministry. Well, let's keep releasing that ministry by sharing some of your music, see what it sparks for our listeners. This is an example of a song that I didn't write, but which I found isolated from its music. It's a very nice English Christmas carol called No Room at the Inn. And of course, it goes back to the story of Mary and Joseph arriving in Bethlehem, going to the inn and finding there's no place for them, so they have to go out into the stable. And it was a very beautiful poem that I found in some old yellowed book, but there wasn't any music with it. It was looked very, very singable, so I rummaged around in my, my memory and came up with another English folk song that had a tune that fit that meter, brought it together, sang it two or three times, and decided it fit, and came up with a whole brand new Christmas carol. No Room at the Inn, Josh Brown. When Caesar Augustus had raised a taxation, he assessed all the people that dwelt in the nation. The Jews at that time, being under Rome's sway, appeared in the city their tribute to pay. Then Joseph and Mary, who from David did spring, went up to the city of David their king, and there being entered, cold welcome did find, for the rich to the poor they are mostly unkind. They sought entertainment, but none could they win, Great numbers of strangers had filled up the inn. They asked and they called and they knocked at the door, but found not a friend, though their need it was sore. Their kindred accounted, said they were too soon. Too late, said the innkeeper, here is no room. Among strangers and kinfolk called welcome they find, for the rich to the poor they are mostly unkind. Good Joseph was troubled, but most for his dear, for her blessed burden whose time was now near. His heart with true sorrow was sorely afflicted, that his virgin spouse was so rudely neglected. He could get no house room who houses did frame, but Joseph and Mary must go as they came, for little's the favor poor people can find. For the rich to the poor, they are mostly unkind. While the great and the wealthy do frolic in hall, Possess all the great rooms and chambers and all, Poor Joseph and Mary to travel unable, In Bethlehem city must sleep in a stable. And with their mean lodging contented must be, for those who have comfortable fortunes agree. They bear all affronts with their meekness of mind, be not offended, though the rich be unkind. O Bethlehem, Bethlehem, welcome this stranger, born in a stable and laid in a manger, for he is physician to heal all our smarts, 
Come welcome sweet Jesus and dwell in our hearts. Some sweet, meaningful Christmas music, No Room at the Inn, adapted, maybe recreated to some degree by Josh Brown. And he's with us here today for Song of the Soul. Josh, the line I like best in there, and I want to know if it's original to the poem or if it's your adaptation of it, you say something about the rich to the poor, they are mostly unkind. That's the end of the phrase. That was in there in the original, and it's sort of the, the phrase that repeats, kind of like the runner line in, in a movie. It's the one that kind of brings you back to the to the core message of the song. How far back does this poem go? I mean, it's, it's a message that you could be singing out there, perhaps, with Occupy Wall Street folks. I think so. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know how old it is. I'm guessing partly by my experience in folk music and partly by the age of the book that I found it in, it's probably written sometime in the late 1800s, maybe 1870 or 1860, probably in England. Many, many people who were unemployed in England, farm workers who were seasonally employed and off during the winters, would do caroling as a way to raise money for their families. And many kind-hearted English ministers would create new Christmas carols for them to sing. They went around from house to house and collect a penny here, a penny there, maybe a little bread or a little something to take home. We've got a little bit more time left for Song of the Soul, Josh. Up next is... Most people at this time of the year enjoy some Christmas carols. I've given you some lovely ones played on the hammer dulcimer, which I also play. Most of the time I'm playing on the Appalachian dulcimer or the five-string claw hammer banjo, but I play the hammer dulcimer as well, and I thought I'd give you a little medley here of three very beautiful tunes, Antioch, Forest Green, and Low Hollow Rose. You just call it Christmas Medley by Joshua Brown.
beautiful Christmas medley on the Hammered Dulcimer by Josh Brown. And Josh, you listed off a number of these instruments you play. Do you ever play accompanied with other people? Do you get you know someone doing percussion and someone doing horns or a violin or those kind of things? Or are you a solo performer all the time? Most of the time I'm a solo performer just because my church work, I have to work quite a number of nights during the week and it's hard to get together for practices. Most of the people who I perform with would do a cappella singing, which is a little bit more fun for me. It sounds to me, at least to some degree, Josh, like deep in your heart, there's also this avocation about spreading this folk music. Of course, a lot of your emphasis is also spiritual. If you just recorded all the music that you wanted to record, how would that divide up religiously, secularly, uh, that kind of division? Probably it would be about 70-30 or 80-20, secular and overtly religious. However, a lot of so-called secular songs have a very strong spiritual message in them. If you're singing the Ballad of John Henry, for example, that's a secular song, but it's also a song about martyrdom and the triumph of the human spirit as well. So sometimes those borders are a little, little hard to keep rigid. We don't really need that much rigidity. Would you care to share anything more about West Richmond Friends, about the character there, about what's important to folks? I mean, music is clearly one of the things they like. I attended one of your worship services there, one of your meetings for worship, and you included 15 minutes of silence. Of course, I come from what we call unprogrammed friends, where the full hour is silence, out of which people may or may not speak. Can you talk a little bit more about your congregation, where it comes from, where it's going to? Well, we have people from every walk of life and from all across the spectrum. We have people who are former Catholics and former Baptists and former just about everything. We also have people who have 10 and 15 generations of Quakers in their family. It's a kind of a a crossroads or a meeting ground for people with, with different experiences. One of the biggest things that drives our congregation is a tremendous interest in volunteer service or in vocational service to other people. We have almost no one in our whole congregation who isn't involved in some form of service work. Uh, I actually did a survey several years ago, and I couldn't find a single able-bodied adult who wasn't actively working in some, some way to serve God or their neighbor. That changes my role In most congregations, the pastor is kind of the coach or the cheerleader. You know, come on, let's get out there and burn those calories for Jesus. But my role is very much more often to say, you could burn out here if you're not careful. You need to step back. You need to take some time. You need to find your center again. You need to balance your activity with time for prayer, with time for meditation and centering. So it's a very different kind of congregation in that respect. Sounds like a fun problem to have as a pastor, to The it role is. that you—I've <laughs> often thought it was a terrible burden to put on a pastor to make them into the cheerleader, trying to get people up and moving and, and doing something, making concrete the love of God on earth. And so <laughs> I, I think there must be a lot of people who just envy your role. Oh, I, I can't speak for others. I envy myself sometimes. They're, they're wonderful folks and a marvelous congregation to work with. Well, thank you for your service to them. How about one more song, and then we'll let you get back to <laughs> researching some more music. It sounds like you're trying to follow very much in Pete Seeger's footsteps. 
Pete Seeger is wonderful. I've heard him a number of times in, in concert. He's a great inspiration to me in many ways. Other people who've been very influential to me musically, John Roberts and Tony Behrens, Gene Ritchie, who I mentioned earlier, Gene Redpath, Gordon Bach, Ewan McCall, just people from all across the wonderful spectrum of music. And I think it was Pete Seeger once who said that the beauty of folk music is not everybody has to be in charge all the time, that there's always room for harmonies. Thanks for sharing some of those harmonies. Last song, what is it? Well, this is kind of a fun one. It's another Christmas song. It's called The Miraculous Harvest. It probably goes back more than 1,500 years. This is a song which has its roots in some of the stories from the early Christian church. A few of them were captured in sources like the Gospel of Thomas. They didn't make it into the mainstream, what we call the canon of the Bible, but they kind of stuck around in the folk process and probably were passed down by word of mouth for hundreds and hundreds of years. The background of the story is that Joseph, Jesus, and Mary were fleeing from Herod, who was trying to kill them. They are going down the road, and the family stops to rest. They meet a farmer who's sowing seeds by the side of the road. Jesus, who is supernaturally empowered, even though he's only a week old, to talk and do miracles, says to the farmer, throw all your seed away, and it'll all grow up, and you can harvest it later in the afternoon. So they, they go off on their way, and the farmer scratches his head and says, all right. And then following immediately down the road comes Herod and his army looking for the Holy Family. They stop and ask the farmer, have you seen them going by? And the farmer looks at it, turns his back to his field, and he said, well, you can see it's, it's all grown up. Jesus passed by this way just as my seed was sown. Now you can see it's all grown up. Then he, he didn't tell them anything more. <laughs> But Herod's captain says, well, gosh, we're wasting our time. Let's go on back. And so they go home, and the Holy Family proceeds to Egypt. Actually, it's kind of a reversal. The song says, Herod proceeded no further into the Holy Land. So somebody got that detail mixed up. But it's a very beautiful, very innocent little song. We're going to end today's Song of the Soul with Joshua Brown with Miraculous Harvest. Quite a story. Thanks for sharing it and all the rest of the music, and bless you in your work, Josh. Thanks so much, Mark. We'll look forward to seeing you again. Miraculous Harvest. Joseph, Jesus, and Mary were traveling for the West. When Mary grew a tired, she might sit down and rest. They traveled further and further, the weather being so warm, until they came upon an husbandman, the sowing of his corn. Come, husbandman, cried Jesus, throw all your seed away, and carry home the ripened corn that you've been sowing this day. To keep your wife and your family from sorrow, grief, and pain Keep Christ in your remembrance till seed time comes again By there came King Herod with his train so furiously Inquiring of the husbandman whether Jesus had passed by 
For the truth it must be spoken, and the truth it must be known. For Jesus he passed by this way just as my seed was sown. But now I have it reaping, and some laid in my wain, ready to fetch and carry into my barn again. Turn back, then said Herod's captain, your labor's all in vain. Tis full three quarters of a year since he his seed has sown. Thus Herod was deceived by the work of God's own hand. No further he proceeded into the Holy Land. Today's Song of the Soul guest was Joshua Brown, pastor of West Richmond Friends Meeting. Find them at westrichmondfriends.org. And we'll see you next week for Song of the Soul. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy That in the light it will heal you And you can feel you And sing out a song